1 to 6. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, with, and with the same measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls in with the pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. The word of the Lord. Thank you for that reading, Merle. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly. That reading that Brian read, when you read it at home in your office, it seems less intense than when it's read around at, at church. Um, we'll get to, to why we had that read this morning, but... Um, this morning, we return to the Sermon on the Mount series. Um, we called this series sort of Instructions on Building a House, which comes from the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that he who puts these words into practice and builds his house upon the rock. Um, when the rains come, what the house will stand, but those who build their house upon the sand, uh, the house will fall down. And so there's this idea in which the Sermon on the Mount is meant to be practiced for us as we build our house on the rock. Um, and how we go about doing that. Now, what I've often said is we've, we've got this temptation to sort of highly individualize this, that it's instruction for building your house. Um, and yet the New Testament and the Old Testament have a communal identity suggests that it's building a, a house um, in the people of God. It's us building a house together. It's not just you building your house. Certainly, much of the Sermon on the Mount can be individually applied, um, but it's to make a people who can be that in the world. And so we've walked through the, um, through the different sections. Um, Frederick Dale Bruner uh, sets it up this way, that there's this call for mercy at the beginning when he calls the disciples to himself, and then he blesses them with the Beatitudes, declaring whom they shall be in the world, um, and that that is in this new kingdom emerging will be fulfilled in some different way, that if you mourn now, you will be comforted. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, that shall be fulfilled, um, that if you're poor in spirit, uh, you shall inherit the earth, that there's these things that, that come with this kingdom. Then he sort of blesses them in another way in calling them salt and light in the world, that this community is going to be essential for the world. This house that we're building is both salt and light, and that builds sort of um, a necessary nature into it for the world to be the world, that it needs salt and light to be there. Then he says to the people gathered, the ones he's brought near, um, the commands, and these are these antitheses that we talked about, which really aren't technically antitheses, because if it was, you know, when you, you've heard it said, um, when you, uh, not to lust, but if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed in your heart, the opposite of that would be like, lust with abandon, have fun. Um, it's not actually that type of antithesis. But what Jesus does is he ramps up these concerns. And one of the keys we use for sort of looking for that is that Jesus says his followers will have a better righteousness, one that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. 
And so see, he is instructing his people and practicing a better righteousness. And this is why those things sort of move up from one thing to another thing. You are allowed to divorce, and Jesus tells, that, tells you that that's no longer the case. You are allowed to hate, but stop here. And he says, even hate is murder in your heart. He sets up those, and after that, he moves to the devotions. Um, these would be in, in Matthew, um, both prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, giving to the poor. Um, and these are sort of the three devotions that he sort of begins to say, these aren't meant for you to do in public. These aren't meant to be practiced in a way that fulfills you, but to be done for your Father in heaven. And at the center of that section is the Lord's Prayer, the center of the whole Sermon on the Mount, with almost, I think, like 70 verses on one side and 72 on the other, is, um, uh, is the Sermon on the Mount. And that's where we pray that, that um, our, to our Father who is in heaven um, and that his will would be done on earth. And there's many other petitions in that. The next thing that Bruner sets up is, is sort of the goals of this life, and that was being free from anxiety we talked about last time, being free from, from uh, having sort of to build um, all your wealth here and collect all that you can to serve two masters. And, and one of the things that I forgot to bring up for that is um, Jamie, who many of you know, uh, deleted social media off her phone. We talked about this way before, and she said her anxiety levels dropped drastically by getting rid of Facebook. Um, she was somebody who, who she would have described as, as near anxious for medication almost, and by getting rid of Facebook, she was able to reset herself. We live in an extremely anxious world that it's getting much better. No, it's not. <laughs> Lauren looked at me like, how? You, you say more, sir, because it does not look that way. Um, we live in an extremely anxious world that seems to be getting more anxious, and we keep centering ourselves on practices, um, feeding ourselves. If you want to think about Facebook is set up on a feed. Huh? Huh? Uh, um, uh, yeah? <laughs> pastors, you know, pastors and dads. We don't have much um, for humor. Um, that, that we feed ourselves in these practices in this way, and all it does is ramp up our anxieties in the world. And so this goal of being able to live a non-anxious life, to be a non-anxious presence in the world, um, for us to think about that, I mean, it may not be Facebook for you, it may not be Twitter or Instagram, but there are, are websites often, or smart ways we use our technology, that purposely ramp up our anxieties. Um, and so I just wanted to go back to that because I forgot to reference it then. And then he gives these warnings, um, and, and Bruner calls this set next se section the sums, is that these are the sums of this life. And so what happened at the beginning is Jesus calls his disciples up on the mountain, and he sits down, and he begins to teach them. And what I wanted to point out is that it be, this is an early uh, drawing, is that what happens is that the disciples are sort of called out into the world to be near Jesus. They're in that inner circle. And the crowds on the outside are witnesses to that. Now, you can move into that circle. Um, you can move away from that circle, too. But this is sort of the way, if you envision what Christ is doing as he sits at the center of this place and teaches those closest to him, his disciples, and then there are crowds that witness that teaching. And so, in some sense, he's instructing these people to be this kind of people in the world. Nowadays, those people are us, who are being drawn near to Christ, being instructed to be this way in the world. 
And Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who we'll be discussing on Tuesday, his way of, of sort of viewing this is, is five, five sets up the church, chapter five, as this visible alternative to the ways of the world, that the community is drawn together to be different than the way the world is. And that six reveals that hidden and simple character of that life, these devotions in which we are fed by God. Seven then asks how we are going to negotiate those problems. How are we going to be this in the world? Which, of course, we think means it will enable us to judge a lot. We are the selected ones drawn near, um, and so we get to judge. Seven begins with the words, do not judge. Now, this is... um, uh, I just want to start with one other thing. This is one of the phrases we've been using often as we study. As Christians, we ought to live the ethic, the life of the Sermon on the Mount. We're human, however, so we cannot live the sermon perfectly. We ought to therefore recognize our obligation and our ability, and by that very recognition, give glory to God. That we are um, called to live the Sermon on the Mount, um, and being human and not Christ, we stumble along the ways. But that is not an excuse for us to give up, but to give glory to God in our attempts to live faithfully this life that God has called us to. So this brings us to today's reading. Do not judge, or you too will be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. The judging in the world, as we talked about with anxiety, is is very high. Um, You are too anxious about the virus. You aren't anxious enough. You voted that way. You didn't vote this way. You don't seem concerned about this. You do seem concerned about this. You live your life in these patterns, but you should live your life in these patterns. We've got many ways in which we just go around judging people. Um, And it's just sort of default, I think, in our world. And we get better and better at it all the time. I joke with Kelly that says, Jesus sells us to not judge, but it seems he gave it to so many of us as our spiritual gift. Um, He must be mistaken here when he says that. Um, I was at a, a, a conference once, and they were like, we need some people to judge the talent show. And I'm like, I'll do it. I'm a Christian. I am very good at judging people. And they laughed awkwardly and said, let's pick somebody else. Um, <laughs> this is the world we live in. Do not judge. Now, what's been interesting about the Sermon on the Mount, going through it and study, is so many of the teachings we found a way to not take seriously. That, that the, whether it's like, don't kill people, we're like, but this is the exception, or don't do oaths. Uh, the famous one we used as an example of don't use oaths was the 39th article of religion in the Anglican Church, which says Jesus obviously forbade oaths, but here's the situations you can use them. Um, and we do that with a lot of this. What is crazy is there's almost near unanimous consensus that Jesus does not mean for us not to judge, um, which just cracks me up. Um, and, and part of me thinks that they're right. I mean, I think that's the hard part with this, is, is that there are enough teachings, Scripture exists in a larger world in which we are instructed to practice these things. Or even at the end of this passage, you know, don't throw your pearls before swine. Well, to consider what is uh, swine in the world or a dog would imply some judgment, um, that there's some tension here. Um, but I wanted to name that, that that's... A hard truth because we spent so much time saying let's take seriously this thing and now we have a pretty uh, explicit teaching and we're going to say well what are the exceptions um, 
here we are at the 39th article of religion all over again. It gets you either way. Um, but I think one of the things that this teaching, what do I want to say about that before we move on? Uh, we'll talk about it, but it seems to mean that, that condemnation is part of the problem, is that you are putting yourself in the place of God, that, that it's not just judging like this is a right act and this is a wrong act, but in some sense you're setting yourself up as the ultimate judge. And what happens in the frame of the Sermon on the Mount is what's being revealed is that we have a Father who is in secret, who sees what we do, and that our, a calling for us is to trust that that one judges that that one sets the world to rights, that that is the one where final authority rests. And so when we want to judge in the ultimate sense, condemnation, we actively uh, usurp, throw off God in that pursuit. And so the challenge for us is to allow God to be God there. Um, One of the things that I, I try to reference about this passage in the email is it's one that you're often thrown out when people find out you're a Christian. Um, I used to joke that one of the ways you can tell you're a Christian is that you have friends who consider you a Christian, but you also have enemies who consider you a Christian as well. Um, and that's a helpful way to, for saying, how am I practicing this faith, faith in the world? But you'll hear it used, thrown back at Christians oftentimes. And the first one is sort of that we should have no standards of holiness. There's sort of, I'm, I'm going to practice my life in this way. So if, if as Christians, we believe, you know, marriage is um, between a man and a woman, and to say that, you're judging, like, and it's like, no, those are just, we haven't moved into judgment net. Now, many Christians on that one are horribly judging, um, but having standards is not judgment. Um, having a way of being in the world and thinking that that is right and ordered is not meant as pure judgment. And so oftentimes, this is used as a ploy by enemies who consider us Christians to make us, um, uh, for lack of better two words, shut up. Like, no, you don't get to talk about this because you're not supposed to judge. And I don't think that's exactly right. The second one that, as a pastor, I probably get this more than you, but, but I'm sure you guys have received it in your life, is, you know, as Christians, we're not supposed to judge. Um, I need to tell you about a child I had out of wedlock, um, which has happened to me, um, that there's this way in which people try to prime the pump for bad news with this passage. Um, you know, Christians aren't supposed to judge, um, but I'm having some real problems with alcoholism. Um, Christians aren't supposed to judge, but I need help with this place in which my life is falling apart. Oftentimes, when this comes to me, people are, are caught. They're not actively... Um, What's happened has been so bad that they're caught where they are. Um, they can't deny that reality anymore. And this one I think is helpful because people are pointing out in a good way, hold up. Something has happened in my life, and I don't want your first reaction to be judgment upon me. And for us to hear that, I think, is the hard part. When people confess the things preceded by, you know, you're not supposed to judge. And one, one time somebody told me a long parable about a woman who had a mink coat who walked by a homeless guy and everybody judged her and we shouldn't judge. Also, this, I, <laughs> I did this horrible thing and I was like, you could have told me that without the 10-minute parable at the front end that was not related to the rest of this. But um, it shows you that we're known in the world for being quick to pull back. And what does it mean for Defiance Church, for us to be a people that can hear, don't judge at that, and to realize that that's not just them covering their tracks, but it's a wise word for us ourselves. 
which I think brings us to the third use of this word, where somebody actually points it out in a conversation and it's convicting to you. We do gather and gossip. Uh, what's the male version of gossip called? Did we just say gossip? Shoot the whatever. Um, and we talk about other people, and we, um, both men and women do this. I was just thinking that David and I gossiping is a weird thing to think about. Um, the, uh, and that somebody says, this, it's weird, right? Yeah. Anyways, somebody says that in a, the context of those conversations, and it actually means we are just judging people. It's often at this moment where we go, okay, well, how about them bears? Um, we change the subject because we know we've overstepped our bounds as a people. There's another way in which we can hear this word and receive it as a grace to us to say that we should stop there. We should change the conversation. We should move forward. Or we can do what's remedied in the next steps. We can begin to do um, what Christ commands us to. And as you follow this passage, it's, it's almost like don't judge, but here's how you're going to judge. Here's, and, and that's in the judge word, not uh, condemn. Here's, here's how to judge, but not condemn as we follow the passage. Ending for this one is the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. There's, a, there's another way in which I think it's helpful to think about trying not to avoid that Christians are called to use discernment in the world is that if I just don't judge anyone, then there's no measure that will be used to me in judgment. Um, uh, so clearly that's not the case. If you just avoided judging people, God would say, you were excellent. You were lukewarm your whole life and never did anything. Welcome into the kingdom of splendors. Um, that this is not a way to avoid being um, judged. Um, but it's a way to say that if you go around condemning people, that same condemnation will be used towards you. And so in the story we read from David, which is the ultimate sort of log and, and dust one in some ways, David judges the man will be judged four times over. And God relents. I don't think it's as bad as um, David would have said. Uriah's suffering was not delivered to him four times. But there are punishments within it. He is, in some sense, measured by the way that he was measuring others. And one of the things that, that is staggering about that situation is how short of a memory we have with our own problems. That was yesterday. Come on. I can judge people for the same thing today because I feel better despite knowing that we're stuck in the own same patterns ourselves and functions ourselves. We can, we can begin to move forward thinking that's all the past for us in an incredibly short frame. I mean, um, it, it's not even years that we begin to think I can begin to judge other people more harshly than the judgment I want to receive myself. And so here is that sort of pointing up in this what's largely flat passage. It's, it's a lot of moral on the human level, but here's this idea in which there will be a judgment, and that judge who is the proper sort of condemner and judger will use the same standards you used in your life to judge you. One last thing on this passage, um, on this section, is, is, is condemnation is, is one of those things we talked about um, 
in the, the murder passage where we say you fool and we hold others in contempt and Christ says that's the equivalent of murdering someone. Um, uh, raka is the other word. And it, that, um, as I was thinking about it this week and reading, there's this apparent thing in certain um, families in which we hold contempt for all the members of our family, our children, our spouse, our parents, and yet we would treat a stranger with utter kindness. We have higher standards for how we treat those who pass us on the street and how we look in the world than the contempt, which is the murder that we hold for other people. And as a parent, um, with a child who lays under the pew and talked during Merle's reading, um, it's a challenge for me, and I think it's a challenge for us who have parents who we disagree with, or have friends that we disagree with, or have coworkers we disagree with, is to move beyond the contempt sort of judgment phase because it's murder in some ways. And most of us have people we wouldn't be that way to. Maybe it's because we care less about them, but even then, how much more would you not want to murder the people who you care more about? And so for us to hear that, that condemnation is not the way of the path within our families, within our workplaces, within the world, um, unless we want to go on murdering those nearest and dearest to us over and over again. The next section, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eyes and pay no attention to the plank in your own? Uh, uh, David, if you could help me with an illustration for a second. Do you just hold this? I'll be the guy. Let's say there's an eyelash in your eye, and I want to help you get the eyelash out. This is, um, this is not going to turn out well, right? No, not for you. This is, this is what we're missing sometimes in this passage is the log in my own eye is actually dangerous, not just for me, it's dangerous for David. Get closer. Come on. Come, no, come on. Come on. Uh, at some point, David will get impaled by the log in my own eye as well. And that we are called um, to sort of remove the log from our own eyes. And this goes back to like, so how shall we judge? We shall take moral inventory of ourselves, remove the logs from our own lives so that we can actually help remove the speck from others. Jesus doesn't say, then don't help get the speck out of your brother's eye. He says, remove the plank from your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That in some sense, the first thing we, we sort of do when we flip this is to look at our own places of fallenness and of struggle, and remove the logs there so that we can help one another. What does it mean for Defiance Church to be a place where we can open ourselves up to surgery with each other? To be able to say, here is a speck in my eye, or perhaps even help me remove the log from my own eye, so that we can become this community of holiness in the world. Go back, <laughs> judge not, is why it's so hard to do that as Christians. With something we hold dear, our right to judge. And even if there is a log in my own eye, and this is where we flip, I think, this too, too much, is we don't go to the, this is, this is it illustrated, which I thought was funny. We don't go to... Um, helping people out of this, we just assume let's not help each other. If we all have logs in our own eyes, let's just let it go. 
And that's not what Jesus commands us to do, is that we should remove the log so that we can help one another. Paul says that we are to speak the truth in love, and as I always joke, we take that to mean that we shouldn't speak at all then. That, that we should, that if we can't, there's no way for some of us that we can imagine speaking truth in love. And that's a real sad thing. That, that we think that to speak the truth in love is impossible, so we just shut up. You keep your log, I'll keep my log, and we'll just keep moving on in the world. And so what John Christen on the back of the bulletin says, we may correct others, but not as a foe, nor as an adversary exacting a penalty, but as a physician providing medicines. To be kind and near to one another. For neither did Christ stay, stay not him that is sinning, but judge not. That is not to be bitter in pronouncing sentences. That, that what John is pointing out here, John Christendom, is that there's this way in which we are healing ointment for one another. We put eye drops in each other's eyes so that we can begin to see again. There's a lot in, in perception in this passage in, in discernment that it's for us to sort of remove these so that we can get close to each other, close enough to see the speck in each other's eyes. And that's close. If there was something in my eye, I'd be like, I need to get Kelly. Probably not David after I just poked him with the log. And there's people in that proximity to us to give us medicine, to help us heal, to sort of do that, is we don't trust a lot of people to do that. And what Christ in, is, is sort of saying here is the church, the people called out in the world, are those to be capable of removing logs from their own eyes so that they can get near to each other and remove specks from each other's eyes as well. And that is a deep, deep challenge for us. David, the David story obviously connects to this because David is able to sort of see uh, how wrong um, the man who was who took the little lamb and ate it and is unable to apply the same standard to himself. Um, and so the, the quest there is nobody really wants Nathans in their lives. And people who want Nathans in their lives, like somebody will say as pastors, and maybe you've heard this from friends, well, maybe you do, but oftentimes people who say they want a Nathan, then you say, okay, well, how about you we talk about this behavior. They're like, I want a different Nathan. Um, I didn't want you. I wanted somebody else. Um, and so those are hard things. But essentially what this passage calls for us is to be able to speak like that to one another. Um, and Nathan had a hard trick there because he had to make the king, who could have just killed him, hear him in a way in which he applies it to himself. There's a little bit of... Um, in being that type of community following Nathan, there's a little bit of an art to it that I think is lost on us. Um, we just point out the behavior and say, stop. Um, and as that probably would have not worked for Nathan, it doesn't work for us in our relationships. But to be able to say, you know, the standard by which you judge the person who smokes those cigarettes at work um, is quite high. But have you thought about the amount of time you spend um, uh, degrading our boss in the workplace. Um, to point that out directly doesn't, doesn't work as well, but to find ways of speaking the truth in a way in which people can perceive that is a deep, deep challenge for us in which we ask the Spirit into. The last, do not give to dogs what is sacred or do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may be trampled under their feet and tear you to pieces. This is, see, everybody knew where this was going now. Um, 
this passage is, is weird because um, it, it doesn't seem to have a lot of reference in the rest of what Matthew is saying in, in this gospel. Uh, oftentimes you would think dogs and pigs. Dogs, there's some evidence that Gentiles were dogs, but Jesus, Jesus in Matthew and all the gospels wants to include Gentiles into the mission. And so that doesn't make sense. Um, and pigs is, is something that he would maybe refer to the Pharisees and, and, and he doesn't seem to want to throw them off. And so one commentator said, since we obviously don't know what sacred things and pearls referred to, and neither do we know what dogs and pigs are. Nobody should preach on this passage, which I was like, well, that's not helpful. Um, uh, but one of the things that, that became apparent to me as I was thinking about, or that somebody else pointed out to me, is that if these are my pearls and that is my pig, and I am one tossing pearls to the pig, um, who's, who's wrong here? The pig or me? Yeah. Um, that there's the first thing in which if you discern other people as dogs or pigs um, and you then are like, well, why won't they eat my pearls? Um, there's a coworker I want to share the gospel with and I think he's an idiot and I keep sharing the gospel with him and he's just so stupid. Um, it's like, well, what's, what's the the problem here. When, when you begin to, to see that somebody is, is so far down the road that you're like, they are pig and dog because they don't respect me. It's like, it's a, you're the one who keeps throwing your pearls and your holy things where for one you've discerned is not worth it. And for Christians to then say, you know, what is, what is our response to that? Now, the dog one is, is interesting because I had a Bible I loved and preached from, and I did not walk my dog. And while he was a puppy, he took it outside and tore it apart. Now, my dog, I could say, that is a holy thing, but that would mean nothing to him, um, and that would be lost on. But what I could have done is walked my dog. What I could have done is fed him. What I could have done is not set him up in places to fail, which I think is a lot of... Um, what unfortunately we do in the modern world is we set up people to be like failures um, and then we blame them for it as well. And so one of the things that if you have the goal, and I'm not sure this is entirely wrong to judge other people as dogs or as pigs, it's for you to say then what do they need? Um, they don't need the holy pearls that you're casting before them, but they do need something. Um, and then how do you meet in that spot so that someday they might be able to be with your holy things and receive pearls of the gospel from you? The second, or, um, and so this one maybe means judge just a little. There's also a not too severe but not too lax thing Jesus might be doing here. Um, don't judge too harshly and condemn all the time. Don't be so lax that you're like, none of this matters. I'll just throw this out there to the pigs. Um, that there's some sort of moral spot we're supposed to inhabit. But there's one other thing that I wanted to say about this one, which is that uh, we covered pushy evangelism. Um, the, the other thing is that we, with the one holy life that we've been given by God, often choose people to be with um, that uh, we are not looking for the best for them, and they are not looking the best the best for us. 
And they become these cycles of friendship, whether they're coworkers or friends in the world or, or family members or whatever, in which you're glad they're there because they'll never judge you. And you play complicit to their problems and never being a help to them. Uh, and, and to speak of this in, in a drinking way is that, you know, you like, you like three or four drinks at the bar, but you love the person to go out with who has 10 because nobody will ever question your three or four if that person has 10. And what happened is we make friends like this so that we don't look as bad and we're not a help to one another. And so there's a discernment here on to don't give to dogs what is sacred and don't throw your pearls to pigs. You have one holy life called out by God. And you can help people. Um, but you need to surround your people who want better for you. And you don't need to surround yourself with people who just want to um, uh, drag you down or that whose behavior covers your own bad behavior. I think that those are two important sort of things to remember there, is that how do we live this in that way? Because there's this, there's this thing that Jesus is very aware of, is that kingdom he's come to preach can be rejected. It can be thrown off. It can be trampled underfoot as he is trampled underfoot. Christ knows the degradation that can come with this. And as he is a help for us, we are to be a help for others, but... Um, the, where I got this thought from, the, the way the guy points it out, he says, yeah, but he was Christ. Um, you might be able to help one or two, um, but taking on the sins of the world, that job has already been taken. Um, and so it's for you in the meantime to move into that spot. And so in closing for this sermon, there's this, uh, there's this way in which the Sermon on the Mount is asking us why we continue to live in broken patterns of being in the world rather than trusting in the Father who sees what we do in secret, the one who promises us the Beatitudes, the one who Jesus is revealing as calling us essential for the world. What Jesus is teaching us in chapter 7 is to continually resist the broken patterns of being a human being in the world. And to accept that we too, like our neighbors and our friends and co-workers and children, are creatures of a gracious God. And that we can learn to live in that spot, trusting that there is one who judges. And it's not us. That there is one who wants us to be near to one another to help us remove things from our eyes so that we can perceive clearly. And there is one who has called us into being in the world in which there are dogs and pigs who reject the gospel that is given to them. But it's for us to be wise enough to ask, what do they need then? And to not allow ourselves to be drugged into the dog fight or into the pit. Let us pray. God, you have called us as your holy people in the world. This wasn't for us to be able to judge it. It was for us to be salt and light, to illuminate and to purify in ourselves. 
And so we ask that you would be with us as your people. Allow us not to scorn your grace that you have for us and judgment in the way we treat ourselves, nor to scorn the way grace is for other people. The grace you have for me, you have for the others who surround me. And to hear that word. But God, may your command not to judge push us into keeping logs stuck in our own eyes or being unable to remove specks of dust from each other's eyes. As you are the great physician for our souls, you enable us to receive from each other as your hands and feet healing touch as well. God, may as we use wisdom in judging dogs and pigs in the world, may we realize it's us who throws the pearls out and gives the holy things to dogs. And in giving them what they don't need, they may turn on us as they turned on you. Allow us to be your gracious creation and praise you and to be for one another in our dim ways, what you are for us. It's this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.